Greetings! This week we have a real meeting of the minds as a neuroscientist and neurosurgeon sit down for a chat about all things brain-related on Mind Matters News. Now here's your guest, Dr. Andrew Newberg, and guest host, Dr. Michael Egnor. Enjoy! Today on Mind Matters News, uh, this is uh, Michael Egner. I have the great privilege of interviewing uh, Dr. Andrew Newberg, uh, who is uh, a pioneer in the field of neurotheology. Uh, that is a field in which uh, he studies the theological uh, correlates of activity in the brain. And uh, so it's uh, my privilege, and I'm very excited to interview Dr. Newberg today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your program. Thank you, Andy. I just want to give a, there, our audience uh, just a little summary of uh, who you are. Um, you are a professor uh, in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences and the Director of Research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Uh, in Philadelphia. And also you have been an adjunct professor of religious studies and a lecturer uh, on the biological basis of behavior program at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, you are a, a prolific uh, researcher, uh, a physician, uh, and uh, you have published 10 books and uh, are really considered a, a pioneer and one of the world's experts on neurotheology. And uh, just going forward, uh, one of the book titles fascinates me, and I'd like to talk to you more about that. The book title is Why We Believe What We Believe, which I think is of great interest to our audience and is of great interest to me. So, Andy, could you uh, describe uh, your research to us, please? Sure. Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of the work that I have been doing uh, has been in this field that has been ultimately called neurotheology. And um, to me, the, the simplest definition of that term is uh, more or less, as you said, that it's really the study of the relationship between uh, our religious and spiritual selves and the human brain. There's a couple of important points that I like to mention about just what this field is all about. Um, First of all, for me, uh, it is what I like to refer to as a two-way street. It is not just science looking at religion. It is not religion looking at science, but it is both of them really looking at each other to help us understand who we are as human beings, recognizing that there's a biological part of ourselves, the brain and our body and so forth. Um, there's a spiritual part of ourselves, which can be you know, more specifically religious, but can also incorporate other spiritual activities. Uh, and of course, there's also a psychological and a social part, which are ultimately kind of all wrapped up in these different dimensions of who we are. The other thing I always like to say about neurotheology is that it, you know, if it's going to work, for, at least for me as a term, I like to define both sides of that very broadly so that the neuro side um, is not just uh, neuroscience or neuroimaging, but it can include psychology, it can include anthropology. It can include uh, medical aspects, you know, how we, how different diseases and so forth are associated, you know, what happens when we develop different diseases and whether they may be associated with uh, different religious and spiritual experiences or how people turn to religion and spirituality in, in times of uh, health crises and so forth. Um, so, so the neuroside to me needs to be defined very broadly. And of course, theology itself is a very specific discipline where we're talking about taking the, the kind of the primary tenets, the, the sacred texts of a given tradition and, and trying to understand what they mean and how they relate to us as human beings. And we certainly can 
look at that from a, a brain-related perspective. How does the brain think about these things? You mentioned the book, Why We Believe What We Believe, um, which has, has always, I felt, been a very important book that we uh, put together and, and looks at beliefs, um, different experiences, attitudes, behaviors, and so forth. So again, for, for me, the theology side has to include all of these different aspects, including um, various practices like meditation and prayer, uh, other types of spiritual practices and experiences, and, uh, and and also really trying to look at this from a very global kind of perspective. So we're looking at you know, many different uh, traditions, and we can certainly talk about this in a little bit more detail later, but we've done brain scan studies, for example, of lots of different practices from almost every different tradition. And that to me is very exciting to be able to see the relationships and interrelationships and so forth that are very very important for us in terms of understanding the overall impact of religious and spiritual beliefs and phenomena in our lives as human beings and how that has an effect on us. So um, a lot of the work that I have done, as I mentioned, has really been looking at the, the, using imaging studies, but there's other aspects that are really very important and, and I'm sure we'll get into them, but there's looking at different medical conditions. As I mentioned, um, we've done some phenomenological studies looking at how people describe different kinds of experiences. So, so there's, to me, it's an extraordinarily rich field uh, of work, a very multidisciplinary field that um, gives us, I think, a very exciting opportunity to find ways of, uh, of bringing religion and science together, which I think is important. And, uh, and again, I think, you know, to me, the ultimate ideal is helping us to understand who we are as human beings. In terms of brain scanning, what, what methods do you use to study the brain? Well, uh, we've been very fortunate to be able to use uh, a whole array of different techniques. Um, as one of my uh, old mentors used to say, if you're going to be a good carpenter, it's good to have a lot of different tools in your basket. And um, and I think to a certain extent, uh, we've been very fortunate to be able to have a lot of different imaging tools to be able to use. Uh, my background in, in the medical world is actually in nuclear medicine. And so that does involve um, injecting different types of radioactive tracers to look at different physiological processes in the brain or in the body. And we have done that with two main types of imaging, one called SPECT, uh, which is single photon emission computed tomography and PET positron emission tomography. Pretty similar in terms of how they work that we inject this radioactive tracer. Maybe it follows blood flow or metabolism or you know some aspect of the brain's function. And we inject that sometimes uh, while people are engaged in a particular practice like meditation or prayer, uh, sometimes a, a kind of before and after. Uh, we did an interesting study of people going through a spiritual retreat program. And, uh, and then we take a picture of the brain. We see where this material went, and it tells us something about the activity levels of the brain during different kinds of states. So we might uh, look at somebody while they're in prayer and compare that to a meditation state or compare that to a resting state or something like that. Uh, and the other main imaging tool that, that I've been fortunate to use is um, functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI, which uh, you know basically uses a big magnet to be able to look at, again, kind of different physiological processes like blood flow or neuronal activity. And, uh, and there too, we have looked at different 
practices while you know people are meditating or just the effect of doing those meditation practices in terms of things like anxiety or depression and so forth. And sometimes that has more of a therapeutic uh, bent to it. But um, uh, one of the, the interesting sort of advantages or disadvantages of these techniques with the MRI, you really have to be in the scanner while you're doing the practice. And sometimes that's, that's very doable. People can do a prayer practice or certain meditation practices lying very still in the scanner itself. But other practices are much more difficult to do that. For example, we did a really fascinating study of people speaking in tongues where they're making these different vocalizations and they're moving around and so forth. So by injecting them with this little uh, radioactive tracer while they're doing that practice, we can then scan them a period of time after they're done when they can lie still, but it kind of captures a snapshot. It captures what their brain was doing at the moment that they were doing the practice. And again, then we can say, okay, well, this is what we see going on in the brain when they're speaking in tongues, when they are saying a prayer or whatever. And um, so those have been the main tools. And, and, and other people have used things like uh, electroencephalography, EEG, to look at electrical changes in the brain. Um, so people are using a whole bunch of different arrays. And, and, and really, it's been a growing field of work to look at these practices from a variety of different vantage points using the technologies that we currently have. Of course, there's, there's an enormous uh, literature and body of knowledge on um, people's experience uh, in various religious disciplines. How does this add to our understanding uh, of spirituality? Uh, how does the use of you know functional MRI imaging, inspect imaging, and and, and EEG uh, what does that contribute to our knowledge of religion beyond what we know from the great texts, from theologians, all, all those things? Sure. Well, and and I think that is an incredibly important point, which is that you know to me it it is a you know it provides a contribution. It provides an added perspective that perhaps we just haven't had the ability to to look at before. But in no way, shape, or form does it you know eliminate or get rid of what those great theologians and and what people through you know through the millennia have had in terms of their experiences and the beliefs that they hold. So you know, on one hand. Uh, you know, when if somebody is a deeply religious individual, that's what's important. Um, and so, in that context, uh, you know, being able to say that their parietal lobe did something or their frontal lobe did something doesn't really change. Uh, you know, what's going on in terms of their own beliefs. It's, it's, it's sort of like saying, um, you know, if we do a brain scan of somebody who uh, we're, we're trying to study love, for example, I mean, it doesn't mean that if we understand what areas of the brain are involved, that people should, you know, stop falling in love. Um, it, it just gives us this new insight into a little bit about how it works and how these beliefs and these experiences have an effect on us. And in that context, I think there is some real value because it does provide some knowledge about how being a religious or spiritual individual or doing a spiritual practice may actually have an impact, you know, not only on the spiritual part of who they are, um, but on the biological part and the psychological part as well. And so, um, you know, sometimes it's helpful for us to understand uh, a little bit more about how these different practices affect us. Um, are they affecting different areas of our brain? Um, you know, one of the things that I think is fascinating is that, you know, even when you talk about prayer, for example. Well, there's so many different types of prayer, and there's prayer that evokes powerful emotions. There's prayer that is deeply cognitive. There's prayer that is contemplative. And a, a valid question is, you know, how are they related to each other? How similar? How different are they? 
Uh, and again, you know, there's certainly the theological explanation about where there's similarities and differences, but does that correlate with something that's different in our brain? Is it tell us something about how our brain intersects with those different practices? And does that in some regard teach us a little bit, you know, if we think that uh, a particular prayer practice evokes powerful emotions, are we seeing areas of the, you know, of the limbic system, the emotional centers of our brain? turning on, um, does it, does that correlate with us in terms of, uh, does it correlate with the findings, uh, and this descriptions that people have of those practices? Um, I think the other thing too, I mean, there, there's always a, a more practical aspect as well, which, um, you know, is, is certainly important for a lot of people, which is, you know, when people engage in various spiritual practices for spiritual purposes, for religious purposes, um, sometimes it helps them feel better. It helps them to cope. It helps to reduce their anxiety or their, their, their depression. And, you know, from a biomedical perspective, sometimes it's helpful to see, well, is that having an impact in the same way that psychotherapy may have an impact or even a medication may have an impact? Is it settling down our, our, our amygdala, our limbic system so that people are less anxious? Um, is it turning on certain areas of our brain to help us feel less depressed or bringing more dopamine into the brain to make us feel, you know, have a heightened mood? So I think that there's, you know, there's that ability as well. And again, you know, uh, this does not lead us down a path of saying, well, you know, if you have depression, we have a brain scan that shows that uh, that this prayer practice can help alleviate depression. You should do this prayer. Um, but what I think it does help us understand is that when people do have a depression, if they happen to find that particular prayer practice of, of value to them, maybe we understand a little bit more about how it's working. How is it helping them? And, uh, and, and I think that that helps us to understand a little bit more, you know, the, the overall relationship between our spirituality and, uh, and our psychological selves. And, and maybe the last way of answering your question, which to me is also quite fascinating, is the whole discussion of human consciousness. Um, you know, how do we actually think about ourselves? How do we become aware of ourselves, aware of the world around us? And of course, in some of these, you know, very profound spiritual states, uh, mystical experiences and so forth, uh, people are able to really alter their their levels of consciousness and trying to understand that, uh, I think, may, may provide us an opportunity to be able to say something about uh, the nature of human consciousness as well. So, so I think in many ways, the answer to your question is that it kind of cuts across, you know, some very, what might be called esoteric ideas, you know, just about what, what prayer is and what these spiritual beliefs and experiences are and teach us something about how, how they operate within us, uh, to things about how the brain works, how the mind works, how consciousness works to the more sort of pragmatic, um, you know, even therapeutic kind of concepts about, well, if you do a prayer practice, is this changing your brain in a way that may help you with depression or may protect you against Alzheimer's disease or something like that. And uh, so I, I think there's a lot of very uh, interesting and very exciting ways of, of taking it, depending on what a particular person is interested in exploring. Certainly from, from what I know of your work, um, I, I, I'm very impressed. I think it's a fascinating topic and I, I, think, you're, I, th I think you're doing wonderful work. There is a um, critique of neuroscience, uh, particularly cognitive neuroscience, uh, that has been um, uh, given by Roger Scruton, who's a, a philosopher. I, th I think he passed away recently. But, um, and he described neuroscience in, in, in a, an extraordinarily succinct but I think accurate way when he said that neuroscience is a vast collection of answers with no memory of the questions. 
<laughs> and um, what 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 I like and what I've read of your work and what you're describing is is that you you are pretty serious about the questions uh, because uh, one can get so lost in the uh, methodology and data produced by neuroscience that you really forget the questions that we're trying to trying to answer. Do you either have uh, or have or have you acquired any? particular um, metaphysical perspective on the relationship between the mind and the brain? Uh, is your work showing you a, a materialist perspective, an idealist perspective, a dualist perspective? Do you, has that entered into your work? Uh, well, thank you. I mean, those are all wonderful points um, and uh, extraordinarily challenging questions to answer. Um, yes. uh, <laughs> and I, have you, know, you I, solved mind-body problems? Right. That, right? <laughs> I, I figured it out last week. Um, <laughs> you know, it, um, well, going back to your, your your point about the critique. First of all, I mean, I, I think it, it's really right on the mark. I mean, you know, so much. In fact, part of why to me neurotheology has a value is that it's not just about the science, but it is about the philosophical issues and the theological questions um, that we ultimately are really trying to answer. I mean, in, in my mind, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of times people ask me, you know, how I got interested in this, and in many ways, um, it was really a philosophical pursuit to understand the nature of reality and how we as human beings understand that reality, and so. Uh, so much of what I think we need to learn in this context is, is is what are the questions and how do people process the answer to the questions? How do we go through our own thought processes? How do we engage them in different kinds of ways? And um, and so you know, from in fact, one of the things that we've started to get more into actually has been to actually ask people those questions. And that to me is, is also actually fundamentally important. That um, it's not just the great theologians who have cornered the market on answering these questions, but what does everybody think? You know, what do other people think about? God's existence and 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 how do they come to those ideas and and what does God mean and how does you know how do they understand what God is for example so I I think that you know part of what we want to do is explore the nature of those questions and then see where when we can bring some scientific uh, information into the discussion um, does it help us does it give us a new insight does it not really help at all. And, you know, I would say to answer your, your bigger question, when it comes to those metaphysical questions, I think that, uh, you know, from my own personal perspective, um, one, I think we have to be extremely careful about how we interpret results of, of any scientific study. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's always important to be open to open to the the materialist perspective, open to the supernatural perspective, uh, and and open to ways of perhaps trying to find uh, an integrated approach that kind of finds ways of linking them together, uh, whatever whatever that means. Um, and so, you know, in in my own uh, sort of heart of hearts, you know, a lot of what I do is actually very contemplative. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about those questions and how the the different pieces of information that I have. Uh, been able to look at it in terms of brain scans and so forth. You know, what does that actually mean, and how do we understand it? And and I guess, and I'm not sure if this is another answer to your question, but um, if my fundamental question is sort of, you know, how do we know what's real, and if what we perceive to be real is accurate? Part of what I, I've always thought about is is that in some sense you have to get outside of your brain, whatever that means. Um, look at the world and then see if what the way the world is out there 
is consistent with what you're thinking on the inside. Now, from a kind of cognitive neuroscience perspective, there's no way to do that. But from a a philosophical or theological perspective, a, a, a spiritual perspective, we have these experiences, you know, certainly the, the more intense spiritual experiences or mystical experiences where people describe that kind of a state where they say that they have gotten beyond their brain, that they have gotten beyond their consciousness. They've become one with God. They've become one with the universe. And I, I, I can't, you know, I, I can't say that those are, you know, absolutely true either, but you know, boy, they're, you know, incredibly fascinating experiences that I think really require a lot of effort to explore and understand and understand them both from the perspective of the experiences themselves, as well as from the perspective of, well, how does that still connect to whatever is going on in a, in a physical world and in their brain? So, um, so I certainly don't have the answers yet. Uh, although I do, I have always said that if I ever figure it out, I will certainly let everyone know. Um, <laughs> as, soon but, as, uh, yes, right. <laughs> as soon as possible. As soon as possible. <laughs> but um, but 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 I do think you know I I think we have to be really careful and uh, and 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 if you'll indulge me for a second I mean one of my favorite little stories is about the study that we did of a group of Franciscan nuns and it was a very small study and um, you know I had uh, the nun had come in one of the nuns had come in and we did her brain scans and I showed her what was going on in her brain when she was doing a kind of prayer called centering prayer versus when she was was just at rest and and after I showed her all the changes that went on in her brain she thanked me so much. She thought it was so wonderful to be able to see. Uh, you know, so thank you, Dr. Newberg, for showing me how the prayer practice, you know, r- really validates my ability to connect with God and it ha- how it has an impact on me and my brain and my body. And she was, you know, really just so appreciative. And I said, you're welcome. And, you know, off she went. And I felt, you know, very good that I had uh, helped to make this nun happy. And then um, after we published our, our study, I had a call from the, uh, uh, the head of the uh, local atheist society. And I said, you know, somewhat sheepishly, hello, and, and how are you doing? And they said, you know, I just wanted to thank you so much for doing this study and proving that, you know, God is nothing more than a manifestation of your brain's function and that, you know, religions are just, you know, we, we can just reduce all religion to the brain. And I sort of said, well, you're welcome. <laughs> and, right, you know, right. off he went and he was happy. Right. And, uh, you know, somewhere in, you know, in, in the yin yang of the universe, there was, you know, I thought it's kind of amazing that one study could make a nun and an atheist happy at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, but but it underlies the point, I think, which is that you know w- the beliefs and the biases, and, and this is you know we talk about this in the Why We Believe book. Um, you know the beliefs that we hold going into whatever pieces of information we look at affect greatly how we interpret them. And so you know I always say, well, you know all the brain scan is showing ultimately is what's going on in her brain when she has that experience. Um, it doesn't prove that God is or is not in the room with her. It's just showing you what's happening in her brain. And um, but from that information, you know, how far can we go and what can we say about these experiences and their effects? And and so I still think that while we may not necessarily be able to truly answer the metaphysical questions, um, certainly, you know, we're not going to do that just by doing a brain scan. Um, maybe by, by bringing all of these different elements together, we might get a little bit closer than we ever have before, but I, I don't know. <laughs> Just wanted to 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 ask: um, Do you see differences um, in the brains of people who are um, meditating uh, in a theistic and a non-theistic way? Uh, is there some is there something different about belief in God that you can see in the brain? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, 
I, we haven't specifically been able to make that kind of a differentiation in the sense of uh, someone who believes in God and praying to God versus um, just uh, you know praying or just thinking about or just meditating. But part of the problem, I think, and this is you know one of the things I get very excited about as as a researcher, um, are some of the methodological challenges of doing this kind of research. And so, part of the problem is is that if you are meditating on God, well, you or praying to God, there's something that you're doing. You're you're praying. You're you're directing your mind towards something, which may be very different from somebody who is is directing their mind towards you know nothing. Um, so you know one of the questions would be like, well, should we, what would be the right comparison and how would we look at that? Um, you know, there was, there was one very interesting study that looked, for example, and, and this may be a partial way of answering your question, they looked at people doing conversational prayer and they found that when people were engaged in conversational prayer, talking to God, basically, that they activated a lot of the same language areas as they did having just a normal conversation with, you know, uh, with another person. And, and I think that that, you know, th- there is an important point there, which is that, you know, we have, we have one brain, you know, each of us has one brain. So, you know, as far as we know in the moment, it's not that we have a different part of our brain that turns on or becomes active when we engage our religious and spiritual selves. But, you know, there, there, if we, if we pray to God, if we use our language, then, our language centers of the brain will turn on. If we feel the love of God, well, our amygdala or our limbic structures will turn on. Um, if we feel connected to God, then the areas that help us with our sort of spatial representation of ourself, you know, help us to feel connect, you know, that's, that's part of how that process goes. So in some sense, you know, I always like to say that there isn't like one part of the brain that is your religious and spiritual part. Um, it's really your entire brain because, you know, there are so many rich and complex ways in which we engage religious beliefs and it can be cognitive, emotional, experiential, behavioral, and so forth. Um, but so, so in many ways, you know, it, to me, it makes sense that, you know, we were given a brain that allows us to be able to have all of these different kinds of experiences and that there isn't just this, you know, extra part of ourselves that turns on when we walk into a church, for example, and, and begin to pray. But, but that being said, uh, you know, it will be interesting to, to see future studies, to see how much we can really differentiate different kinds of practices and those that are more theistic. Um, and of course, you know, it'd be really interesting also to see, a, you know, is there a difference between a Muslim, a, a Jew, and a Christian all praying to God? Um, you know, are they, are they all doing it in a similar kind of context? Uh, how much do the beliefs that go along with their, with their tradition um, affect the way they think about their relationship with God. Uh, you know, if, if, a, if a Muslim is, has the concept of surrendering to God um, and a, a Christian may have a sense of connecting with God or being forgiven by God, then, you know, in and of itself, those could be differences, but not necessarily because of the actual perception of God. It's just how they, how they themselves are, you know, the actual being of God, of course, but it's how they're perceiving that relationship. So, so it's a, it's a great question because they're, they're, it's a very complex, you know, we have to go through a very complex set of ways of thinking about that question and, and how we might best answer it. And then, and then keep pushing our, our ability to keep thinking about those questions. There's a uh, philosophical perspective on the mind-brain uh, relationship that um, goes back um, uh, into the 19th century. Uh, it was uh, uh, William James commented on it uh, quite a bit. And that is the notion that um, 
it's not the case that the, that the brain generates the mind, but rather that the brain um, focuses the mind. Uh, that is, that the mind as part of the soul is a much a much larger thing than we ordinarily experience, and the the brain is a biological organ that puts the mind to work in the in the natural world, but that the right. mind is something fundamentally different from from the brain. And I've always been impressed that um, great mystics, uh, I've, m- most of my acquaintances with the Christian tr- tradition, mm. um, speak of a dark night of the soul uh, and the necessity to suppress, uh, in, in some sense, suppress your brain activity or suppress your ordinary mental activities to allow oneself to connect to God and to, to connect to transcendent things. Do you see any evidence for that in the brain imaging? Well, you know, in some senses, yes. Uh, you know, again, we have to be careful about what we might conclude. But what has been fascinating to me um, is that in a number of the practices that we have studied where people do feel as if they have kind of released themselves or, you know, let go or um, kind of or surrendered, you know, to to God in some way. And, and this has been, you know, there, there have been a number of our brain scans that have looked at this. One of the areas in, in our brain that actually particularly shuts down is the frontal lobe. And, you know, our frontal lobes are typically involved in helping us to do purposeful things and to think what we're doing, uh, think about what we're doing and do purposeful behaviors. So it's intriguing to me that that these that this area of the brain starts to shut down when people have those very intense kinds of mystical experiences, these intense spiritual experiences where they do feel like they're not in charge anymore. They are kind of allowing it to happen and, you know, going along for the ride, if you will. That's absolutely fascinating because that's that's exactly what the um, practical everyday experience of uh, of people who in, in, are, do contemplation or various mystical, uh, mystical prayer uh, try to achieve is to basically shut down their own mind to connect more readily to God's. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so, I mean, there, there is some evidence for that. And, and of course, you know, the other area of our brain, which we have observed quieting down, um, is the parietal lobe, which normally helps us to kind of generate, uh, take sensory information and generate our sense of self, our spatial representation of ourself. And during these practices, that parietal lobe starts to quiet down. Uh, we think also in a similar kind of context to kind of blur that boundary between self and other to kind of quiet down the ego self, if you will, in conjunction with the frontal lobe um, and and thereby, you know, helping to facilitate that kind of experience. But, but I also want to come back to your first point, which I think is also extremely important. We talk about this, you know, I've talked about this a lot in my work. What, you know, what is the direction of causality? And again, to me, this is a really fascinating, you know, neurotheological question, philosophical question, and biological question, which is, you know, what's generating what? And I think, you know, it is so fascinating to watch the, you know, individuals who have these intense experiences. It's fascinating to see what goes on in their brain. But again, it doesn't prove that the brain is generating the experience. You know, the brain itself, as you were saying, you know, could be can, you know, I mean, if, if I see a, I mean, just to be really simplistic, if I see an, a car outside, well, you know, my brain didn't generate the car. I, you know, the, the sensory experience that I have of the car is generated in my brain, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that's what's going on outside. And so if people are connecting to God, if people are connecting to some, you know, ultimate consciousness or something like that, you know, who's to say whether or not this is just our brain, you know, receiving that experience, as you mentioned, um, or is generating it. And, and I think, you know, this is where, again, I, I think 
there's wonderful theological questions, philosophical questions, and now we can bring in a little bit of the science and say, oh, well, you know, isn't this interesting that the frontal lobe quiets down? Does that tell us a little bit more about what's really going on? If somebody is generating language and their language areas have shut down, how is that happening exactly? You know, and, and does that push us a little bit further down the path towards investigating these kinds of questions? But, but I think still, you know, ultimately the experiences are, are kind of what's fundamental for us to understand. And, and that's why, you know, even in my own kind of uh, examination of this whole topic, to me, my own contemplative processes are very important because I think that helps me to continue to engage those questions. Do you see any differences between the um, brain activity, uh, again, in people who are contemplating in a way that is theistic and people who are contemplating in, non, in non-theistic ways? Well, you know, the, the one um, interesting little, you know, N of one study that we did, which somewhat answers your question, <laughs> is uh, we, I had a colleague of mine who was a fairly deep meditator, um, had meditated pretty much on a daily basis throughout most of his life did not consider himself to be theistic uh, in in terms of his own religious beliefs. And we said, you know, well, why don't we do this? Why don't you meditate once, you know, while you're thinking about God and then uh, you're meditating on God? You know, what does God mean to you? How do you think about the concept? And then doing that in comparison to just your your other meditation. And what was interesting was, was that, you know, and, and this has to be taken with a big grain of salt, is that when he was thinking about God, his brain didn't do very much. And, and I think that what's important is, is that when you uh, are engaged with something that you profoundly believe in, then that is more likely to cause profound effects in the brain. And when you are meditating on something that you do not believe in, then you, you know it's just not going to give you that kind of, of an impact. Or you know if you don't believe in God, even though you're thinking about God, that that isn't going to have nearly the kind of effect it will uh, as someone who really truly has a belief. And so I think that in general, what we have found is that that people who um, you know who, who do have a more theistic faith, um, you know, certainly activate their brain in very substantial ways, um, very much in terms of you know how they interact with something as opposed to those individuals who have more uh, of a practice where they are not focusing on a particular thing, um, but just kind of emptying the mind, so to speak. And, and there are differences there. But, but again, part of the issue I think comes into play, uh, and, and, and this, is, this is challenging to us, is that um, you know, any time that we look at someone who has a, a profound belief uh, a belief in God, for example, then how does that just change their brain at all? And um, and how does that affect the way in which they think about the world, look at the world? Um, how does it prime them, uh, so to speak, to look at the world in certain ways? And, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, I'm sort of reminded of, of one of our prior studies that I found very interesting where we were showing people different symbols that were either religious or non-religious. And and the religious symbols activated the brain in a much different kind of way than the non-religious symbols were. And then when people had a belief in them, it, it affected them even more. But what was interesting was that it affected it in particular in the occipital lobe, in the primary visual cortex, really before, so to speak, the, the symbol got up into their brain. So it was really affecting the, you know, their beliefs actually affected the way their brain perceived reality, you know, from the get-go. And, uh, and I, I think that has some interest, you know, uh, talking about sort of the 
interesting theological implications of that. The idea of, you know, if you pray, if you are a religious person, that you actually change sort of, you know, the fundamental nature of who you are. That's what this information kind of talked about. So, so it is possible to do that um, and, and to be able to change you. So, uh, there, so again, you know, fascinating issues and questions that uh, we certainly have a long, long way to go before we can answer all those questions. Kind of getting back to Roger Scruton's quip about uh, the vast body of knowledge or a vast body of answers with, with with such difficulties with the questions. The questions are are so fiendishly tricky. Yes, in the Thomistic um, understanding of the soul, the um, connection one would have with God would be an, would be an immaterial connection. It wouldn't be um, uh, a material act of the brain. So one might even imagine that the um, connection with God would not be something that would show up on any kind of brain imaging. Uh, but then again, cause and effect is difficult. So what shows up on brain imaging may be the the material response to the immaterial connection, or it could even be um, the suppression of, uh, of, for example, activity in the in the occipital lobes. Perhaps that's suppression of right. visual um, perception to allow an openness to uh, immaterial uh, ways of understanding. Uh, so it's so difficult to interpret, so difficult to know. Oh, absolutely, but but that, it's a ver- you know that, that it's a really interesting issue too, and and I completely agree. You know, it, it, um, when when you talk about uh, you know how the whatever it may be immaterial about our our being, you know, I, I, well, one of the one of the statements that I've always made is that in some sense, uh, one of the most fascinating findings I might have is that somebody says I had the most incredible mystical experience while I was in the scanner. And the scanner shows nothing, you know. Then, <laughs> then, right, right. then maybe that, by default, you actually find, you know, the the spiritual, so to speak, the the, the immaterial. But right, at least the the Thomistic tradition just sort of roughly considered. Uh, obviously, Saint Thomas didn't think a lot about MRI scanners. Right, right. From the Thomistic tradition, one would uh, expect um, there to be no correlate. Exactly. Uh, and, exactly. And, um, so. I, I, very interesting. The- yeah, but but also, but and but let me say this also, which is another like another little interesting aside too, which is that you know part of what I think is as an interesting ability to do is to think about how we think about these things. So when we say when somebody conceives of a soul as immaterial. What does that mean? You know, how does a brain understand that, and what does it? You know, how do we engage that uh, in an idea? Uh, part of it is is how does the brain actually? You know, what is the brain doing when it's thinking about an immaterial soul? On the other hand, uh, you know, again, part of what I think is also so important because it just has this sort of it gives it a little bit of this scientific point is you know could we could we go to a church for example and ask a hundred people what do they think? about the soul and you know how would they describe it or define it or what terms would they use uh, and and see you know like does everybody say it's immaterial does everybody say it doesn't interact with the, the brain do people say it doesn't or you know like like how do people actually start to think about these kinds of questions and uh, and you know that in and of itself provides some fascinating viewpoints in terms of how our brains think about these questions. Um, you know, we, we did a study for one of our books called How God Changes Your Brain, where we asked people to draw a picture of God. And we said, you know, what, what just pops into your mind when I say, what does God look like? You know, what, what pops into your mind? And it was fascinating to see what people would draw. And, you know, sometimes people would draw 
uh, a very anthropomorphized, you know, sort of like the Sistine Chapel kind of concept of of God, you know, uh, as a sort of, sort of old man with a you know beard and flowing hair. Um, other people drew very abstract ideas, um, you know, uh, nature, um, and and fascinatingly, some people left it blank because they said God is undrawable, you know, and there's you know there's no way for me to actually draw God. So, but each one of those answers is fascinating in terms of well, how does the person actually engage in what they're believing in, um, and how do they think about that? And so, so there's some really um, you know to me really interesting things that can continue to be explored as we as we look at these questions what's rather uh, rather fascinating is that uh there's there's a there's a, a, a fantastic book called uh, other world journeys and honestly i'm blocking on the author's name she's a uh, i think it's zaleski so yes 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 i'm familiar with that book yeah <laughs> carol zaleski uh, i i i couldn't put it down it absolutely fascinated me and um what she points out that I think is so intriguing is that throughout human history, um, there have been these spiritual experiences uh, in, in, in all cultures, uh, in all eras, and they seem to have significant commonalities, but the actual content of the experience seems to be determined significantly by your culture, by the world that you're living in, that, right. that a person living in, in our culture would have a different experience of God than a person living in the Middle Ages or a person living in ancient Egypt or a person living in the Far East. And uh, so that we, in some sense, I think what she, what she conveys is that the experiences that people are having are transcendent and they can't be expressed uh, in, their, in their actual form. We can only express them through, through things that we know in our, in our daily lives and uh, fascinates me. Yeah, well, I, I absolutely. I mean, that, that raises a whole other area, which is to me very important in the field of neurotheology, which which is, you know, the, these experiences. She was focusing a lot, as you mentioned, on uh, actually on, on like near-death experiences. And right, I mean, you know, if somebody has a near-death experience and they see a being, you know, somebody might, a, a Christian may call it Jesus and a, a Muslim may call it Allah and a, a Hindu may call it Vishnu or something like that. But th so then the question becomes is, do they all see the same thing that they are, as you said, you know, or just they're, they're describing it the best they can based on, on their prevailing belief system, or did they actually fundamentally see something different? Um, and, and in a similar context, you know, people, we, we did this whole online survey of people's most intense spiritual experiences. And some people would say, I felt God. Some people said, I felt a force. Some people felt love. Some people felt awe. Um, you know, again, are they the same experience interpret different, interpreted differently? Or are they, you know, uh, uh, are, are they actually different experiences? And, um, and I think that that's by exploring the descriptions of these experiences, and maybe if we can somehow, you know, get to something that's going on in the brain and trying to understand that, we can see where the similarities are and the differences. Maybe everyone perceives a being, but they just they call it different things. But the being is the is the universal trait, um, or or maybe they, you know, one of the one of the common experiences uh, in these uh, mystical experiences is the feeling of oneness and connectedness with with God, with the universe. So, it, does everybody have that? Experience? Experience and if so, what do they feel connected to? 
and uh, you know which are the the more perennialist kind of you know universal characteristics of these experiences, and what are the ones which are unique, um, and and how do we understand those unique characteristics? Um, so yeah, so you know really really fascinating, and and thinking about again you know what's what's really happening in the experience what is happening in the person's consciousness and mind, what's happening in their brain, and, and see what we can do about trying to understand the nature of those experiences as best as possible. And of course, you know, again, you know, to me, one of the most fascinating things about all of these experiences is that, uh, and we wrote an article on this, that people describe them uh, as being more fundamentally real than our everyday reality experience. And of course, for the other listeners, you know, we all have that because no matter how real a dream feels uh, when we're asleep, when we wake up, we say, oh, you know, that was just a dream. We immediately relegate it to an inferior perspective of reality. But that's exactly what happens in the context of people having these mystical experiences, which is that the everyday reality then becomes inferior. And I, I don't mean that quite so hierarchically, but, right. but you know, that, that it's not as real um, as these profound experiences. And of course, again, what does that mean? You know, does that mean that they really have achieved a connection, you know, that their brain has connected to a different plane, a different way of looking at the world that it hasn't been able to do before? Um, and, and, or, you know, is it, is it just a manifestation of the brain? I mean, it's, uh, it's really quite fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. One thing we had spoken about a little bit in the last segment, which which uh, you mentioned, which I is, is absolutely fascinating, is the impression that people have when they have spiritual experiences that there is a a greater reality to the ex, to the spiritual experience than there is to their ordinary waking life, uh, and that that's that's a hallmark. Uh, in 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 many situations, people can't even find words for it. Uh, and uh, many of, of the great mystics have, uh, have made it clear that they can't really describe what they, what they experience, but that what they experience is more real than anything they can describe. And people who have near-death experiences uh, very often say that, that what they experienced was, was far beyond. And if you think about it, the near-death experience, if indeed it is associated with a um, with a lack of, of activity in the brain, um, is an extreme example of what uh, Thomas Aquinas or even Aristotle would say uh, is an immaterial experience of the mind. It's an experience of, of the mind that is that is not material. That doesn't come from from the brain. Right. So a, a, an absolutely fat, fascinating insight. Well, and you know the the study of near death experiences does. You know, here's where you know a kind of neurotheological approach could have some really powerful, uh, you know, paradigm shifting implications. And um, uh, a colleague of mine um, has actually been trying to do some more formal research looking at these uh, experiences that you know. Uh, Obviously, as you mentioned, I mean they, they they tend to occur when people are near to death. Uh, obviously, the name, and so um, you know the idea of trying to corroborate what are you know well known you know probably thousands of anecdotal stories of people describing the room, uh, describing maybe a patient in another room. Uh, you know, if we can really try to validate that scientifically, that could be quite fascinating. And you know, there there are uh, fairly elegant ways of designing. A, a pretty simple study where, uh, you know, if we go to trauma bays, if we go to, you know, cardiac areas where we know that there's a high likelihood of people who will be close to death, 
and then find out, you know, who has who that happened to, uh, find out who may have had a near death experience, and then you know be able to challenge them by asking them specific questions, maybe having certain things in the room, you know, like uh, one one thought has been to have like a shelf above a bed uh, with some kind of picture on the other side. Um, so, you know, like a picture of the Eiffel Tower or something like that. And of course, if they said, you know, I, I died, I floated up to the ceiling and then I saw this picture of the Eiffel Tower, you know, like th- that could go an incredible long way of, of trying to prove that, you know, that there is this immaterial soul consciousness, whatever that goes beyond uh, what the physical body is able to do. And so, you know, there, you know, if we're creative about how we think about some of these studies, there could be some really fascinating opportunities to expand the way we really do think about uh, the world, the way we think about ourselves, uh, and how we understand ourselves. You know, cognitive neuroscience, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, I mean, is kind of trapped in this very materialistic perspective, which, you know, I can appreciate. And, and there's certainly a value to thinking about things that way. And, and uh, you know, I know with your background, I mean, obviously, you know, d- doing surgery on the brain and, and, and helping to, quote unquote, fix people who have brains that are, you know, uh, with Parkinson's or, or Alzheimer's or a stroke or something like that can be, you know, absolutely essential to helping people. But, but that doesn't mean that that's all we are. And and, um, and and trying to find that other part of ourselves, there, there may be some really intriguing ways of trying to do that. When I began, um, when I was interested in uh, neurology and neurosurgery as a medical student and, you know, and subsequently in my career, I um, initially thought that I would gain a very deep insight into, into the soul, into what it meant to be human by studying the brain. Um, and I've come to realize that that um, there's much about us that doesn't show up in the brain, uh, and that the brain is an organ like any other, and it's it's an organ that allows us to perceive, uh, allows us to remember and to move and do things like that, and to have emotions. But that there's a very large part of human experience that doesn't seem to come from the brain. Right. Um, the brain's involved in it, but it doesn't come from it. Uh, and I've become passionately convinced of that. And that's one mm. of the reasons why I've embraced Thomistic psychology is that I think St. Thomas had had the, the explanation that best fits what I've seen uh, in 35 years. Mm. And, you know, even one of the things that I challenge my students on, would, even if one takes a very materialistic perspective, you know, I mean, this is, it becomes, I guess, in, you know, in the world of consciousness studies, the hard problem of where does consciousness actually come from? And, and I say, well, you know, look, I mean, if you take a materialist perspective, you've got sodium and potassium ions rushing across a, 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 the nerve membrane, you've got, you know, blood flow, you've got metabolism, you've got electrical activity, you've got neurotransmitters crossing synapses. So where in all of that is our thought, you know, where in all of that is our consciousness, and and how does how does one understand that? And and it's really, I mean, obviously, it's a it's a, a, fan, a fantastic mystery. Um, but but that's where also where I guess you know I personally feel that just taking a scientific perspective obviously becomes limited based on what we were just talking about. Um, having you know only a kind of philosophical or theological approach may miss the biological piece of it, and so you know that's where I kind of keep coming from in terms of maybe this kind of integrated approach that looks at finding pieces of both, you know, the science as well as the the spiritual, you know, does that, can that push us down the path a little bit more in a way that we've never been able to do before? I, I don't know if that will, will ultimately lead to the answers, but, but I, I, you know, at some point I feel like 
you know, there, there is, so, there's something about trying to find how the, the material and the immaterial work together, um, and, and, and without being, you know, dualistic and, you know, uh, maybe it even has a sort of, um, uh, you know, analogy to like the quantum mechanics of, you know, uh, we, we, uh, my late colleague, Gene DeQuilly and I wrote an article called consciousness and the machine. And we kind of argued that ultimately, you know, the brain and consciousness are sort of like two ways of looking at the same thing. Sure. And, um, much like, you know, looking at a particle and a wave or like two ways of looking at the same thing. So, and now I'm not saying that we're relying on quantum mechanics to, to answer that, but, but that, that sort of analogy of, you know, maybe we tend to say, you know, maybe when we look for, you know, if I do a brain scan, I will find a brain change, you know, and if I look for the experience, I will find the experience. And so maybe they are different ways of just kind of looking at the same thing. But I, you know, again, th- these are the kinds of challenging questions for us to, to pursue and, and to look at where we can take the science and where we can take our, our contemplative uh, processes to, to help us elucidate an answer to those questions. The positive uh, experiences, spiritual experiences that you've described uh, are absolutely fascinating. There, there, are, there are, however, quite a few negative spiritual yes. experiences that people have. Um, uh, anything from uh, you know losing one's faith to um, to sin, uh, even to you know demonic possession, things like that. Have you ever or have you had a chance to study that, or is that something that you would like to study? Well, definitely something I would love to study. Uh, you know, we, we have definitely thought about it uh, in our survey. We certainly found that you know while. 95% of people, uh, you know, it's an overwhelmingly positive experience. There is that small percentage of, of several percent, 5% or whatever, who have experiences that are negative. And of course, as you mentioned, I mean, then there's even sort of the more obvious, uh, you know, joining cults, uh, terrorists, uh, you know, what is it about, uh, you know, going to the ISIS website and saying, gee, you know, like, this sounds good, you know, like, <laughs> let's, let's blow right. people up. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, you know, every, every tradition has had their, had their violent tendencies at times. So, um, you know, what is it that, uh, leads people in, in down those, uh, very dark pathways? And, and you even mentioned the other one, and again, I'm sure, you know, you've dealt with this in your own practice in one way or another that, you know, I'm fascinated by the fact that when people are struck with some tragedy in their own life, the loss of a child or something like that, some people turn towards God as a way of, you know, God's going to help me through this and, and my relationship religious and, and spiritual faith are going to be what helps you know to to cope and, and manage through this while other people say how could God do this to me and they turn away from God um, sure. and and that's again you know on, on a more pra- I mean on one hand I think neurotheology has an interesting opportunity to help us understand those distinctions what is it you know what goes on in the brain of somebody who feels like joining a cult is the right thing versus somebody who feels like you know just being a, a religious individual who wants to improve the world and so forth you know what what are the differences is there, but also there may be some interesting opportunities, you know, on a more kind of, uh, I guess, therapeutic perspective, if you will, to say, you know, what are the things that are going on that lead somebody down that darker path, that negative path, and and can we actually help to understand that so that we can find more effective ways of you know redirecting people into something that is more positive and more constructive, and you know, there's been a lot of work uh, over the last uh, couple of decades, you know, taking people with for example, depression, and recognizing that there could be a spiritual component to that as well, and that uh, you know, incorporating 
religious or spiritual concepts into more traditional psychotherapeutic interventions could actually be very helpful for the right person. I mean, obviously, if the person is a very devout atheist, then maybe not. But but for someone who has a rich religious background, you know, helping them to engage that in a way that might ultimately be therapeutically effective could actually be very beneficial for somebody as well. So so there's again, you know, there's sort of this you know ranging all the way from the esoteric of well, what does this dark side, you know, dark night of the soul actually mean, and 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 what is what might it look like to um, you know understanding. Uh, the nature of people who are engaged in these negative aspects of religion and spiritual beliefs to, you know, more practical ways of helping people uh, work through them and, and help them to, to become, you know, uh, healthier, you know, develop a, you know, a better um, a sense of well-being and, and health. And, and in fact, uh, the most recent book that we wrote called Brainweaver, you know, talks about the, that spiritual side of ourselves and how valuable that is and, and necessary it is for us to have our overall health and well-being. I mean, we have to eat well, we have to exercise, we have to, you know, do all the other things that that take care and nourish the body. But but the spiritual side of ourselves are are, are fundamental as well. In the the ongoing uh, debate between theists and atheists, it's not uncommon for um, uh, the respective sides to trade uh, accusations of mental illness. That is, that uh, atheists will say that theists are, are basically just you know marginal psychotics who are imagining gods there and so on. Theists will say that atheists are sort of autistic with with respect to God and so on. Right. Do you find any um, correspondence between the um, brain activity in people who are either theist or or atheist? With uh, genuine um, uh, neurological disorders like schizophrenia or like autism. Well, you know, I, I think I think the you know to me at the moment, and and while um, you know it, it's always hard to look at a given individual, uh, usually we're sort of looking at populations. But um, but there have been some interesting studies that have looked at these kinds of questions and. I give you one example. This was not one a study that I did, but um, but I thought you know I think may shed some interesting light on your question, which is that you know there there were a number of studies that were designed to try to help to show that uh, and these were people who had some obvious biases against religion that um, that people who were religious were you know not as intellectually smart or weren't as good at solving solving problems and things like that, um, and they would have them do these different syllogisms or logical problems or whatever, um, and somebody got very clever and they said well you know maybe it has to do with the nature of how the questions are, are portrayed and worded, and what they what they did. There was this nice little study that was done where they took religious individuals and non-religious individuals, and they had them solve these different logical problems. And they had some logical problems that were more positive to religion, for lack of a better way of saying it, and some that were more negative, you know, towards religion. And what was interesting was was that the people who were religious. Did really well on the on the logical problems that were positive towards religion, but didn't do as well on the ones that were negative. And the atheists, it was just the opposite. So it wasn't like they did, you know, it wasn't like their their overall logic was better or worse, but it operated in different kinds of ways. And um, another interesting example was that um, they did a study of of religious believers and non believers, and they showed them. Um, pictures that had been blurred, um, so almost like a Rorschach kind of thing, but but they were actual pictures. And what they found was, was that people who were religious were more likely to see things in the picture that were not there, uh, you know, were not originally there in the picture, but, you know, didn't miss things. On the other hand, the atheists didn't see things, you know, never saw something that wasn't there, but sometimes didn't see things that actually were there. 
And so my take on a lot of this information is that uh, I feel that, you know, that the idea of, of, of sort of how we look at the world and how we are biased to look at the world in one way or another is very much is how we sort of shape the beliefs that we ultimately hold. So it's not that one side, you know, has a mental disorder or, or the other side has, a, you know, a different kind of mental disorder, but that, you know, there, there are different ways in which we look at the world. And then that leads us down different paths of thinking about the world one way or another. Um, same can be said of Republicans and Democrats, or even just, you know, in, in academics. I mean, some people are really good in mathematics and science and others are good in the humanities. It's not that one person is better or worse or right or wrong. It's just that they just look at the world differently. And we talked about this a lot in the Why We Believe What We Believe book that, that um, you know, to us, it seems extremely hard to say that, uh, you know, people who have, who are deeply religious, you know, have psychoses or delusions or whatever, because there's just no, I mean, yes, of course there are some people who do, um, but uh, just as there's atheists who do, um, but that, you know, for, by and large, I mean, you know, these individuals are highly functional. And I mean, I, I going back, I, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, this, this study we did of speaking, people speaking in tongues when they were speaking in tongues, I mean, they looked completely psychotic and crazy and all that. And then five minutes later, they're totally fine. And these are all people who have jobs, have families, you know, I mean, they're totally normal in society, but they get into this state that is just, you know, so fascinating and unusual. What goes on in the, in their brains when they're speaking in tongues? Well, when there's, I mean, so the, uh, that was one of the first times where we saw that frontal lobe activity actually decrease. Um, and so, you know, cause they talk about the, them not, you know, they say that they are not making it happen. Um, that it is something that is happening to them. In fact, uh, I had this little funny interchange with one of the first people who did the study and I said, okay, you know, for the first state you are going to, uh, speak in English. And then in the second state, you are going to speak in tongues. And they corrected me and they said, no, 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 that's not how it works. They said, you know, I can only get myself into a state in which it might happen. Um, I'm not making it happen. And so uh, we tended to see the frontal lobes decrease in those individuals who were speaking in tongues. And what, what was the was the decrease in the speech area? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in the in the both in the in the larger frontal lobe as well as in in Broca's area about the production of speech. So then the question is, so what exactly? is making those sounds. That's, I mean, um, that's, 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 that's astonishing. I mean, yeah. that's, and, and, and it, it, it's, it's, it's very consistent with, with, as you pointed out, with the Christian understanding of what speaking in tongues is. Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. But it also speaks to the fact that this is a person who is able to enter into a state and then be back in sort of, an, you know, the everyday reality state. And so, you know, the, I don't believe that these individuals meet any kind of criteria for you know, psychosis, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're completely normal otherwise. And, and, and some of them I knew very well, <laughs> they were wonderful people. Yeah. I've, I've, I've known people who do that. They're, oh, they're, yeah. they're, yeah. they're very sane yeah. people. But by the same token, let me just flip the question around. I mean, the, that there are relationships between, you know, there, there are schizophrenics who believe that they are the Messiah, that there are people who have temporal lobe epilepsy who have unusual, that's interesting and important as well for us to look at because there is a relationship um, in, at, in certain circumstances. And does that tell us something about, you know, how does the brain work? I personally believe that schizophrenia is the most interesting disease in medicine. Um, it's, it's also one of the most tragic, uh, yeah. it, 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 it robs a person of, 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 of so much of their life. 
Oh, but, absolutely. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. And I, I have this feeling, I don't know if you share it, that we have not scratched the surface. You know, we, we, we have drugs that will cover up some of the symptoms, but we don't know what's going on. No, absolutely. Do, do you feel, does your work give you any insight into, into mental illness? Is that something that you've been able to address? Well, I mean, a lot of my more traditional work, um, you know, with imaging has looked at, you know, a variety of different neurological and psychiatric conditions. We have studied, you know, people with, uh, you know, head injury. We've studied people with depression. We've studied people with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and so forth. And, you know, so there are certainly overall, you know, changes that are seen in the brains of these individuals and and some are more uniform like alzheimer's tends to have certain specific patterns but as you mentioned i mean some of the other ones like schizophrenia which just can be so heterogeneous in terms of what the symptoms are and how they affect people uh really hard to get a handle on and um uh, and as you said i mean part of it is is that we know that um that you know it, you can give a, a drug that kind of blankets the brain in a certain way and maybe calms them down or something like that but it's not fixing the fundamentals of who they are and and whether various combination of spiritual practices and meditation and uh, and diet and nutrition and the right medications you know i we you know, we don't know we really don't know um what the what these individuals uh are going through and and how their brain is actually operating but uh, you know, we again, we, we talk about this a lot in, in our Brainweaver book about, you know, how does how do we try to maintain a brain as healthy as possible? But once you get into some of these more severe conditions, it is very challenging to know how best to to manage them. And, and uh, you know, we, we just have to keep looking at uh, at how I mean, how incredibly complex the brain is and and trying our best to understand it and figuring out the best ways of trying to help people manage it in, in effective ways. It's wonderful work, Andrew. And uh, the uh, as 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 you may know, I've 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 had some reservations about neurotheology as as a field because I'm I've I'm afraid that purely a kind of ideologically materialist perspective will arise from this kind of research. But right. it certainly seems from 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 our discussion and from your work that. Um, you're doing it in a way that really is trying to get at the truth, uh, and that's 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 a, that's that's a wonderful thing, and it, it's a fascinating topic. Oh well, thank you, and and I and I share your concerns too, and that's you know I've, I've tried to point that out with people when they're when they're heading down paths that are are not necessarily you know the most effective answers to the questions. They have to be careful about you know what any of these studies mean, um, sure. you know. Uh, and I know we're getting close to the end, but you know, even studies where people take different substances like psychedelics, and it, they have these experience. You know, we we have this Western perspective of then that they're artificial and they're created by this drug. But you know, for for shamans throughout the centuries and millennia, it's it's the doorway to open the brain to that other world, that other realm. And you know, again, I I don't know, you know, what what's really going on, but. But we have to really pay attention to all the different perspectives that come out of this result. And there's there's a tendency, I I, I think, in, in in scientism in general, and, and and neuroscience has some of it too. Yeah. To uh, label experiences that people have as necessarily being purely pathological, purely ex explainable in mundane ways. And and that really isn't necessarily uh, a, even even a scientific way of looking at it because right there have been millions of people who've had experiences like this exactly and to exactly. just dismiss them all as being just on drugs or crazy or something isn't really scientific either <laughs> exactly exactly completely agree. 
Well, I am uh, very grateful uh, for your, for your time. It's been a wonderful discussion, and um, I, I would like to do this again. So, any any time you'd like to come back, we would be, we would love love to have you. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. So this has been Andrew Newberg. Uh, he is a uh, pioneer in the field of neurotheology. Uh, I'm Mike Egner from Mind Matters News, and thank you for listening. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.